0: All right, well go ahead, if you uh, have a Bible, if you need a Bible, Tom is in the back holding a Bible. Boy, that was some alliteration right there for you. Um, Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be going this morning. If you have a device, we are in the ESV version. If you're new here, that's the one that we go through. And again, if you need a Bible, I know it feels awkward to raise your hand, but I'm the only one that's going to look at you and make fun of you. So uh, just feel free to do that. We really want to hear some pages turning this morning. That's our, one of our aims here. Acts chapter eight, we're in week 15 of our series here in Acts, the church that Jesus builds. Well, it used to be that you had to know what you were doing in order to do things. And then this thing called YouTube came along. And what YouTube did was it gave everyone the idea that they possessed the unique ability to do whatever they dreamed of doing and so what we have now is that with the exception of me, everyone can fix everything. (laughs) Everyone can do a bathroom remodel now, right? Everyone can build their own cabin. Everyone can perform their own open heart surgery, we have YouTube now to help us with these things. iPhones, they continued the trend, right? Everyone thinks they're a photographer, a professional photographer now but what we've seen is that when it comes to YouTube and when it comes to having our iPhones and these tools and these devices that we now have at our disposal, what we've seen is that just having the tools doesn't mean you possess the ability. It doesn't mean you possess the unique talent and ability to execute what it is that you need to do. But when a person comes to saving faith in Christ Jesus, they are given a unique power. They're given a unique ability. It's a unique power and a unique ability that, by the way, isn't of their own doing, but it is a power to live in such a way that was impossible to live before. Again, and we're talking about a unique kind of power, not the power of positive thinking. That's not what we're given when we're given the unique power of the gospel when Jesus saves us. We're not given the power just to live our best life now. We're not given the power of, girl, wash your face. We're not given that power. We're not given the power to just be you because you only live once. That's not the power that the gospel gives us. The gospel has a far more unique power that empowers us to be ambassadors of the power that saved us. That's the unique power of the gospel. So as we get to chapter 8 here in the book of Acts, this is what we're going to see. We see that the church is growing. The church continues to grow. And with growth comes opposition. And it came in the form of a man, it came to in the form to a man named Stephen, who becomes the first in what will be a long line of martyrs that the church will experience throughout its history. But here's what we find that's so interesting and unique is that martyrdom only fuels the spreading of the gospel. It only increases the faith of the church. You'd think that it would be the opposite, but whenever the church begins to experience persecution, somehow it becomes bolder and it becomes more expansive and expressive than ever before. Tertullian, who is this early church father, um, he made this quote. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church, right? So there's something about persecution that doesn't silence the church, but empowers the church to continue proclaiming the gospel. So something unique happens when everything goes south for God's people, and it's that they get to experience the gospel's unique power. And it's a power that's so unique that it allows us to endure persecution, which we're gonna see here this morning in Acts 8. It's a power so unique and powerful that it ends religious and racial racial tensions. It's a power so unique that it exposes false professions of faith in order to maintain the purity of the church, of Christ's body. So we're gonna do is here is pick up in chapter eight, and we're gonna see how this unique power unfolds in the aftermath of Stephen's death. And here it is in verse one. It said, And Saul approved of this execution, talking about the killing of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Let's just stop Right there. Because the first thing we see here, in terms of what we mean by this power that unfolds, this unique gospel power that unfolds in the aftermath of Stephen's death, the first thing that we see is that persecution fails for the persecutor. In verses 1 through 4. So this man named Stephen, he dies for his faith. It says the church is scattered. It says men and women are being dragged from house to house to prison. And it's all because some maniac Pharisee named Saul is going from house to house, doing everything in his power to stop this movement that has just gone bonkers and taken hold. Right? But nobody can shut up God's people from getting the message of the cross out. Nobody can do it. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because the word of God cannot be silenced where God intends it to be heard. It's just not going to happen. When Peter and John were arrested and they were brought to prison all the way back in Acts 5, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, remember, he told the council that they were facing under charges. He said this, he said, fellas, if this work is of God, it cannot be overthrown. Like there is nothing you're going to be able to do to overthrow this work if God is indeed behind it. So the gospel's unique power is that no earthly power can disarm it. Jesus told the apostles that they would have this power. He told them that too. He told them that in Acts 1 verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you know what's interesting is that we see this continuing today. And we think about some of those these just insanely tragic church shootings that have happened in our country over the past few years. And what happens every time we see that happens? What happens? Well, every single time you hear from men and women who, what do they do? Do they shrink back? Do they just call it in? Do they just shut down the church? Well, no, they, they courageously express their hope in the fact and in the truth that Jesus is still king that despite the actions of these wicked, depraved men, these evil men, that God's word doesn't lose its power to change and transform men and women. So whenever a man or a movement or a government tries to silence God's people, God speaks up. He speaks up. Because in the end, persecution ultimately fails for the persecutor, right? I don't know if you've ever visited the Pacific Ocean, but the waves, depending on where you're at, get high and they get crazy. And so thinking that any kind of man-made movement, even if it's death, is going to prevent God from spreading the message of his gospel, it's kind of the equivalent of standing in the Pacific Ocean and thinking you have the power to stop the force of a wave from crashing over you. Like I've done it. And here's what happens, the wave never loses. I get soaked, I fall over, I plead for my life. That's the power of the gospel. So what emerges from this, just this heavy heartedness that we see here is a wholeheartedness. And it's a wholeheartedness for the message of the gospel by those who have been scattered. And they don't just scatter to go find holes to hide in either. And by the way, you see the same pattern all through history persecution comes, the church is scattered, people go to prison, Christians lose their life. By the way, that's still happening, but it only strengthens the church. Well, how do we know that's actually true? Well, because this gospel that was preached in Acts 8 is the gospel that reached us. We are here because they were there. So we are the continuation of this same scattering, this same unsilencing of the gospel. Persecution fails for the persecutor. And we should just let that encourage us today. Saul thought he was making progress in his attempts to silence the early church, but it just kept getting louder. And the volume just kept getting turned up. This is the unique power of of the gospel. Here's another way that it unfolded in verse 5 in that religious and racial barriers are broken. Follow with me in verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. So as the church is scattered, what's actually happening is what Jesus said would happen before he ascended to heaven. When he told them again, this was in Acts 1, verse 8, he said, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said. So Philip, if you remember back in Acts 7, he was one of the men chosen to be a deacon along with Stephen. This brother lands in Samaria, which, by the way, was a hostile environment for a Jewish person. Why? Well, because the Samaritans were a mixed race. They were a mixed race of Jewish people who at one point had intermarried with a pagan race of people called the Assyrians, right? So this gave them sort of a mixed race, but it also gave them a mixed religion as well that the Jewish people like weren't real, just fond of getting cozy with, okay? So although they they held The the Samaritans held some similar beliefs that the Jewish people did. They also adopted some pagan traditions and idol worship. And by the way, it's not incredibly different than what we see today with certain religious streams, right, that might claim to be orthodox or claim to be Christian. But when you go deeper, you find out something different. You see that they go way beyond what's taught in God's word and come out the other end with a kind of religion that just absolutely doesn't align with scripture, so that's not an unusual thing for that to happen because it happens in, our, um, in America and in, in our churches as well. But here's what we see is that Jesus at one point made a play into Samaritan culture, right? Jesus loved the Samaritans. Remember how he first made contact with them when he had his encounter with a woman at a Samaritan well in John chapter 4. So Jesus was the first to cross over and break down some of these religious and racial divides. And he did it by preaching grace and truth to those who he shouldn't have even been talking to. He was criticized for even coming within their presence and speaking to them and caring for them. So what does Philip do? Well, Philip continues. He continues where Jesus left off and he goes to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. And it says the result in verse 8, is that there is much joy. Don't miss that. don't, Don't miss that the writer of Acts, Luke, told us that the result of his preaching, the result of his signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit had given him as a testimony to Jesus, the result was that there was much joy. It doesn't say they dressed better, right? It doesn't say they stopped watching Netflix, It doesn't say they attended Christian concerts and only let their kids read the Chronicles of Narnia. That's not what it said they did. It said there was much joy. Why? Because joy is why Jesus died. So the very thing that Jesus intends to happen with the spreading of the gospel is that joy will be created in hearts where before there was anything but. So this is why it's important to acknowledge racial and religious divides in our community and in our country so that we can be intentional in using the gospel's unique power towards reconciling. We're reconciling what? we reconciling our attitudes and our hearts and so that we can break down prejudices that are either overtly or covertly held. Because this is what the gospel does. The gospel changes our hearts toward people we've been brought up to hate and look down upon because of their skin color. Ronnie, I don't do that. I hope you don't. And maybe it's not overt, or maybe it's covert in your life. It also changes our hearts towards people who we think could never change because of their religious or their non-religious practices. The gospel comes in and says, yeah, hold on. You were all like that, and then you were changed. So the unique power of the gospel is that it changes, and it changes both the hearts of racists and the victims of racism. It changes the hearts of the religious as well as the irreligious and the immoral. So for me, growing up in sort of the evangelical bubble that I grew up in, we were told to stay away from all the irreligious and the immoral people out in the world. The message I was preached in some ways was, Ronnie, beware. The sin of the world is so powerful and so potent that the only defense we have is to retreat until Christ returns and delivers us from the influence of evil. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we don't guard ourselves. We do. It means we don't build a wall around ourselves. We don't do that because that's not what you see here. What you see here is that Philip was in Samaria, but not of Samaria, but he had to be in Samaria to reach Samaria, right? So we don't shy away from the people that God has put in our life that don't align with who we are in Christ. We don't shy away from friends and coworkers and family members, and neighbors who have different views than we do, whether it's related to a number of different things, whether it's related to abortion, religious beliefs, political views, or anything that we would say is absolutely contrary to Scripture. Why? Because the gospel has the power to break through and bring joy to broken people. That's why. It's a unique power. And by the way, it's a unique power not because it changes people's political or religious views, although that can and should happen in some particular categories. It's unique in that it makes people who are enemies of God into his friends and they become beloved sons and daughters. The gospel's unique power also does something else. It exposes the hearts of everyone who makes a profession of faith. A profession of faith. Because look what happens as we dive into verse 9. This character is introduced to us and it says this, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic, what, in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the unique power of the gospel is also something that exposes professions of faith. Now, for those who follow me on Instagram, you know I loved baked goods. I don't even need to say that. I love bread, right? I love bread and I love things that look like bread but have a lot of sugar on them. We call those cakes. But I love bread. It fills my heart with joy when my wife is baking bread. It fills my belly with future dieting as well. But here's the problem is that I'm impatient because I love my bread. Um, But here's the thing, when you're baking bread, you need to be patient because when you bake something like bread, you have to let the dough do this thing called proof, you have to let it proof, meaning you need to let it rest for a while so that when you actually bake it, it rises and it becomes the beautiful bread that you will, at some point, put some beautiful butter and beautiful jam on, right? So that's what you have to do now. Our Christian faith is like that in the sense that it needs time to proof, to see whether it rises to be an authentic faith. So since the power, since the gospel is the power of salvation for those who believe, it means that somebody can say they believe. Somebody can say Hey, I profess faith in Jesus without them becoming what the gospel transforms them to be. And this brings us to Simon the Magician, like a character from Harry Potter right here in the book of Acts. Simon, what we know from history is that he was actually an enemy of the early church. He was a famous leader of this particular heresy, this false teaching called Gnosticism, which was a belief that salvation comes to those who receive not the grace of Jesus Christ, but some special secret knowledge from God that only they know about, right? And you still see this kind of in operation today under different names. We don't have time to get into that. But the Samaritans held Simon up as this great revered figure in their culture, It'd be the equivalent of someone in our time, man, this certain, you know, like a religious type, right, that's written a bunch of books and he ends up packing out arenas, going number one on New York Times bestseller list, has millions of followers on Twitter, is a major influencer on Instagram, like one of these types where all of us, we just mentioned his name, everybody goes, oh yeah, no, I've seen him, I've gotten one of his books, or I shouldn't have gotten one of his books, you know, or whatever, however that works. But then this crazy thing happens here is that Simon hears Philip preach and it says he believed and not only did he believe, but it says he he got baptized. So, so the good news is just it's blowing up in Samaria. We have celebrity magicians now who are professing faith in Jesus. And so Peter and John, it says, they're they're sent in from Jerusalem um, to 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 come in with Philip and to pray for the Holy Spirit to now fall on this particular people. And it says this in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's make sure we understand what's happening here. All right. I want to make sure that because this sounds like kind of confusing, and we're trying to understand what it means that these people had already believed the gospel, but then they had to have somebody being like sent in and shipped out to them so that they received the Holy Spirit. What's what's happening right here? Well, this is what it means: when you repent of your sins, okay, and you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, immediately takes up residence in your heart. In fact, we know this because Paul tells us this in Romans 8, verse 9. He said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So one of the markers that we are now belonging to Christ as a son or daughter is that the spirit of Christ is living inside of us. So why did Peter and John have to come out and pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit? Well, first off, Jesus told the disciples before he ascended to heaven that they must wait for the Holy Spirit to empower them for the work he had in front of him. And remember, this this happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. Back in September, we read through that. Secondly, this additional empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it came upon the early church for specific reasons so that signs and wonders would be performed as a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. It was a unique time in the way that God was empowering his people. And then thirdly, we would say that the same thing happened to the Samaritans, this empowerment, this Holy Spirit empowerment for signs and wonders as a way to show that salvation in Christ was offered, by the way, not only to the Jewish people, but to all nations, tongues, and tribes. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So what is happening here is that this was like an authentication. It was like a fulfillment of what Jesus said. In other words, the church that Jesus built in Jerusalem, it now exists in Samaria. It's spreading, it's scattering to the ends of the earth. That was always the big idea. This was not a religion for Jewish people. The message of the gospel was to go to everybody. And so that's what's happening right here. But then we see that the story shifts back to Simon, the magician whose profession of faith might have just been that. It may have just been a profession. Look what it says as we pick back up in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So significantly, the gospel's unique power is not something that can be purchased, which is what you saw happen here with Simon. Now this is a dude who sees that his magic act has the potential to lose some Facebook likes, right? Unless he's able to match the miracles the Samaritans are now seeing the apostles perform. So really, his profession of faith has been proof. We're seeing what was really in his heart as he claimed belief in the gospel, as he was baptized in the gospel. So Simon, what does he do? Well, he offers money to see if he might purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. Give me this power also, he pleads with Peter, he says. And Peter just comes down on Simon in verse 20. He says, dude, your heart is not right. You're caught in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, and you need to repent. And what comes to mind here with Simon is that hearing the gospel, professing faith, being baptized doesn't necessarily mean there's been any true repentance. Because when it was proofed, when Simon was proved, when his faith was proved, we find out it was lacking authentic transformation. By the way, this is a common occurrence in the church. Right? Ronnie, I became a Christian at age four. Dude, I was baptized. Hey, I walked down the aisle at sixth grade youth camp. I came forward one night at a Christian concert. I prayed a prayer one night with my friend who shared the gospel with me. And you know what, all of those things can be legitimate occasions for true conversions. But the question is, do we see any fruit that gives evidence that the gospel actually transformed the heart and brought it from death to life and from darkness to light? In fact, Jesus talks about this in one of the scariest passages in Scripture. Let's turn to Matthew. Make a left. Go to the first of the four gospels. First book of the New Testament, Matthew 17. Look what Jesus has to say about this Matthew 17 verse 15, I was wrong, it's not Matthew 17, which means um, when we talk about proofing, you should proofread your sermons if you guys ever, alright, so we're just going to hold off on that, right, it's going to sound good on the recording too, Um, so, so, what we see happening here in Matthew, if I would have given you the right passages, was that Jesus talks about trees that only bear good fruit. A good tree can only bear good fruit, is what Jesus was pointing out as he was, as he was uh, communicating a parable to his disciples. He said, So, if you're a good tree, you're going to bear good fruit. If you're a bad tree, the only option is that you're going to bear bad fruit. And he said, Here's the crazy thing is that in the last days, many people who face me in the end are going to say, Lord, They're going to call me Lord, and they're going to say, didn't we do all these crazy things for you? Didn't we heal the sick? Didn't we see all these conversions happen? Didn't we exhibit the power of the gospel through us? And he said, I'm going to look at them, and I'm going to say, I never knew you. Because all of that stuff didn't necessarily lend itself to legitimate conversion." So we can act out all of these different things in ways that on the outside or to people that are on the inside look like legitimate, unique displays of God's power. And then in the end, it can turn out that the people that have displayed these gifts don't even know Jesus. And in the end, it's not a good fruit, but it's a bad fruit because it came from a heart that wasn't for Jesus, if that makes sense. That was probably a better explanation than if I would have read it. So there we go. There we go. But it doesn't appear that Simon had a true conversion because his heart was coveting something. That's what we see. His heart was coveting a power he thought could be purchased. So what's the big idea with this is that it's easy to profess the Christian faith. You can say it. Say it, right? I'm a Christian. I just said it. Like anybody can say that. Just like I can also say I'm a plumber, but I've never fixed a toilet in my life, right? I'm a lawyer, but I don't have a law degree and I have never tried a court case in my life. I'm a chef, but I've never prepared a meal worth eating in my life, right? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 verse 12, he said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, all right? So now, he says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He said, work out your salvation, your own salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, it doesn't say work for. It says work out. And you can and will work it out because it is God who works in you. So what we see in Simon here is that God had not worked in him for that salvation to be worked out of him. Now, we don't know what happens to Simon in the end. We're not we're not told. When Peter calls him to repent of his wickedness in verse 22, he responds kind of funny. At first, it sounds like he's kind of humbling himself. He's saying, Peter, pray for me. But the problem is that Simon still was was missing the the mark here. Simon still missed the aim of the gospel. He still missed repentance. Al Mohler, uh, president of Southern Seminary, this is what he said about this. He says it like this. Simon was still making the mistake. He wanted to be saved from the penalty from sin, He wanted the benefits of the gospel, but he was still not repenting of his sin and bowing his knee to Jesus. So the unique power of the gospel that comes from faith and repentance had not broken the power of sin over his life yet. What about about us? What about for those of us who have been filled with, with the love of Christ. What about for those of us who have been given this unique power? What does the gospel provide for us? Well, I'm going to break that down right now for us because here's, here's what the unique power of the gospel provides for us. The first thing is that it provides a unique endurance, a unique endurance. It gives us grace and faith under pressure, What we're seeing here when the church is scattered and they're going to these regions is that they're experiencing pressure, just like you experience pressure. And what they're given is grace and faith under that pressure, a calm, a steadiness, a stability when everything is breaking down around them. King David, the psalmist, he speaks of this kind of grace in Psalm 46 when he writes, God is our refuge and strength, he says, a very present help in trouble. But then he says this, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. When the world, David says, is bearing down on you from all sides, you are never removed from God's side. That's the unique power of the gospel. It gives you a unique endurance. And it's under this kind of pressure that your faith will grow and grow to be a godsend to others when everything is bearing down on them. So don't think that your faithfulness to God doesn't have wide-ranging effects. Look what happened after Stephen died A brother that couldn't speak the gospel anymore. What did it cause? Well, it caused the people to be scattered so that the gospel would go out. And it would go out through people who needed a unique endurance for what they were about to suffer. The gospel has a geographical reach wider than this world. Why? How? Because it's an otherworldly message. So whatever your version of persecution is, The gospel gives you the unique power to endure and not merely endure, but embolden you in the process. And here's what I mean. Every Sunday substance church, we gather, we're gathered right now. And at some point if this message ever ends and it may not, we're going to scatter. But before we scatter, we are filled with, wait for it, the substance of God's word the substance of God's people to encourage us to be courageous lights into the dark corners of our town, right? The corners that Jesus has uniquely placed all of us in. So we want to pray. We want to pray to be filled, to be refilled with this unique power because it's heavy with hope It's a power that's heavy with hope and it's the only kind of weight heavy enough to counteract the heavy weight of fear and worry and anxiety and broken dreams and broken bodies and broken lives that you and me are uniquely surrounded with. It's the weightier weight. And it's been given to us as a gift. So the gospel's unique power provides a unique endurance. It also provides a unique love the heart to love those unlike you. Jesus is the one that set this up. He gave us the model for this when we read about his life. I mean, gone are the days. Gone are the days when the church positioned itself like some remote commune in the woods to protect itself from the evils of everyone who disagrees with them. Yeah, there are churches that still do that. We ain't one of them, right? That's a denial of the gospel's unique power to transform and we're going to see it here with Paul, a guy named Saul that's going to get his name changed to Paul, and he's just going to get decimated by God to do the work for God here in the coming weeks. I mean, you think you have a family member too far gone? They're not even close to Paul. They're not, they're not even in the same realm as Paul. Let that encourage you. But the gospel has this unique power and ability to change your views of those who have differing views that, by the way, may even be in opposition to God's word. The gospel gives you a unique love for them. And by the way, it doesn't just give you a new view, but it gives you a new approach. How? Like Philip, offering grace and truth mixed with love. By the way, the gospel is offensive enough. The gospel is offensive. When you're telling people the work of Jesus and what it means for them to admit that they need that because they're sinners, that's offensive. We don't need to add any extra offense through thinking the world should already act like us. Does that make sense? They can't. We add what the gospel has already given us, which is an unlike love for those unlike ourselves. We need the gospel to humble us more and more so that we see people less and less as being less than. The gospel has this unique power to give us a unique love for the unlovely. It's what Jesus did when he came down to us. He humbled himself for a bunch of impossibly proud people like you and me. The third thing it does is it provides us with a unique humility, the humility to welcome godly rebuke. Oh boy to come to church week after week, to go to community group week after week, to enter into fellowship with your brothers and sisters of the faith week after week and have your heart grow softer and more responsive as you become increasingly aware of your sin, number one. Increasingly grateful for God's grace, number two. And increasingly more affectionate for the person of Jesus Christ, number three. Man, we need a unique humility that only the gospel provides so that we're able to welcome words of conviction. And welcome words of warning so that our hearts remain free from the bonds of bitterness and iniquity. Simon wasn't a humble man. He hadn't been humbled by the gospel. That's why we talk so much about the gospel every week. That's why we just, it's it's like a broken record up here. You think I don't feel that? You think I don't feel the broken recordness of this? But it's the only record we can spin. It's the only one that gives life. It's the only one that grows us softer and more humble before the Lord. That's why we just got to keep saying the same thing every week. Don't stop coming. You got to keep hearing the same thing every week. But we need this unique humility. And we need this unique power. And we need to remember that we possess something. We need to remember that we possess something when the gospel takes possession of our hearts. You need to remember that you have something so unique that it took the death of God's son to provide it for you. That's the uniqueness of the power of the gospel. Now, I just had this moment, it took me years, but I bought a Kindle, all right? What's unique about a Kindle is the amount of books I have at my disposal anytime I want. You guys are like, you're the only one that doesn't have one of those things, Ronnie. We know that. But it's like a mobile library, right? I can go on a plane with more books than I could ever fit in my carry-on. It's unique in that. So what I possess now is something more than I could ever possess if I was the one trying to carry everything. Does that make sense? You possess something unique when the good news of Jesus takes possession of your heart, you possess the only thing, listen, I need everybody to look. You possess the only thing that will not pass away. You possess the only thing that will never lose you or let you go. You possess the only thing that doesn't produce regret. You possess the only thing that doesn't end in despair. You possess the only thing that gives your suffering any meaning. You possess the only thing that allows you to endure the brokenness of this world with a hopeful hope. If God is your God and Jesus is your Savior, this power is already yours. So we end with this question. Will you finally embrace what's so great a death has made possible for you to receive by so great a grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for the great death, the costly death of Jesus, and the great grace that we now have because of it. Thank you for the unique power of the gospel that resides in those of us who have been saved from our sin and from God's wrath. God, thank you for this unique endurance, this unique love, this unique humility that's been given to us for our good, for your glory, for our joy, for our happiness, for the good of others, for the sake of the message of Christ spread to those who are in darkness. Thanks that we embody this But Lord, we don't see it, we don't believe it, and we don't pray for it. So Lord, would you refill us with this power? As we read Acts 8, would you allow us to not read this as some fable or story that happened thousands of years ago that has no bearing on us? But God, would you allow us to see that this unique power that was given to the early church exists today because you are God and you're unchanging and this is the message of the cross. And so God, I pray that this would humble us. This would encourage us, God. This would fight through our unbelief and our despair. Lord, that you would give us hope this morning for those of us who need hope, that we can be reminded that you are the God of hope, that you are the God of peace, that everything we have has been given to us from Jesus. So God, would you fall on us? Would your spirit fall on us this morning? Would you empower us as a church that has a unique power, not of our own and not for self-satisfaction, but for the sake of the one thing, Lord, that can give us much joy, which is the truth and the hope and the reality of your word, your salvation, your presence, we pray in Jesus' name.